welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to or welcome back to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast on training, nutrition and sports science. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined today, as always, by the king of clarity, Coach Trevor Connor. Today, we're doing something a bit different, taking a step back, way back, to see the forest for the trees. Let me explain. Many of you have been fascinated by our recordings with scientists and coaches like Dr. Steven Seiler, Dr. John Hawley, Dr. Inigo San Milan, and Joe Friel. We've received a stack of questions about polarized training, the two thresholds, how to execute long rides, and many more. They've been great questions, and they've made us think about how we can answer all of them. The complex concepts we've discussed in our deeper science episodes were developed by far smarter people than us. Still, that science is only valuable if it's communicated to our listeners in a way that makes it approachable and applicable to you. After all, what good is any of this if you can't use it to improve your performance? Or, better yet, to captivate your spouse or best friend with the cool science you've just learned about on Fast Talk. So today, we want to play the humble role of science communicators to make sure we get the message right. Today, you get Coach Connor and you get me. We've also sifted through past episodes with our many distinguished guests to bring context to what we hope is a simplified, unified message about the fundamental principles of these previous shows. Yes, we love the deep dive as much as you do, but if there's one thing we think is critical at Fast Talk, it's to step back and ask what it all means to see the forest for the trees. So in this episode, we take hours of Fast Talk recordings and boil them down to a very simple message. There are just three types of rides. That's it, three. Yes, that's a simplification. Yes, you're getting our bias. Yes, you're going to listen to this episode and think, well, what about the mm, fill in the blank? And you're right. If you want that level of detail and scrutiny, please return to those past episodes. Today, we're talking about the forest. We're hoping to give you a framework to understand all that scientific detail. We're going to keep it simple. We'll discuss. First, when you take away the complexity, training boils down to three ride types in most training models. We'll give you a simple zone system based on physiology and explain why that's important. We'll define the long ride, why it's important, how to execute it, and why there are no shortcuts. We'll define the high intensity ride, why less is more with this type of ride and why executing it with quality is so critical. Dr. Seiler actually divides these rides into two categories, threshold rides and high intensity work. For this podcast, we're lumping them together, but we will hear from Dr. Seiler about why we shouldn't neglect threshold work despite the current popularity of one minute intervals and Tabata work. We'll discuss the recovery ride. Ironically, for most of us, this is the hardest ride to execute. When we're time crunched, we might think that spending an hour spinning easy on the trainer is not time well spent. We'll discuss why that philosophy is dangerous to take. Finally, we'll talk about some of the exceptions, including sweet spot work and training races. Again, today you'll mostly hear from us, but we've also pulled segments from past episodes, many of which spurred the questions we're now trying to answer. We've included excerpts from Dr. San Milan, once the exercise physiologist for the Garmin Slipstream World Tour team, among others. 
we'll hear several times from Dr. Steven Seiler, who is often credited with defining the polarized training model, which he developed from his research with some of the best endurance athletes in the world. Dr. John Hawley will address both long rides and high-intensity work. Dr. Hawley has been one of the leading researchers in sports science for several decades and is a big proponent of internal work and carbohydrate feeding, but even he feels there's a limit. Grant Holicky, formerly of Apex Coaching here in Boulder, Colorado, has worked with some of the best cyclists in the world. He sees undirected training, those sort of hard rides, as one of the biggest mistakes athletes can make. He'll explain why. And finally, we'll hear from legendary coach Joe Friel about sweet spot work and why it does have a place, even though technically it's not one of our three rides. Now, to the forest. Let's make you fast. In my mind, a lot of the questions out there from from listeners seem to want to apply a bit of complexity to something that is that is at its core pretty simple. And we'll get into why it's simple, we'll get into how it's simple. This this episode is kind of about seeing the forest through the trees and honestly eliminating a lot of the complexities that people are trying to bring to this. You, you don't think that listener who sent us a question about how his aerobic threshold was 145 beats per minute and should he be doing a long ride at 143 to 145 <laughs> or should he be pushing 46, 146 or 147? Yeah. Because that's a really critical question. In your tra- Yeah, I don't know what it is. We, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the fact that out, out in the world, a lot of coaches maybe want you to do all of these complex intervals and this for one minute and five reps and this at this, you know, power at this for this many minutes. And, and they, perhaps there's just this, this feeling that if it's not complex, it's not specific enough, and it's not going to be beneficial enough. Kind of like if it doesn't hurt a lot, I'm not getting any gains from it. Oh, we're going to go into that. Exactly. So I get the sense that um, some people are overthinking it. Yeah. Look, I, one of the most revealing things for me was we did a couple episodes and I wrote an article or two articles about training data and all the various metrics. And so mm-hmm. I interviewed four or five top pros for those articles and podcasts asking, what metrics do you use? And the interviews went nowhere because every top pro I talked to, like, yeah, I, I let my coach deal with that. I don't really look at the data. And really found that the pros they they mostly train by feel. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that they, they aren't training very, very effectively. Obviously, they are. They're pros. But they just know that this is what this type of ride should feel like. This is how it should be. And I can tell you, when I go with a, for a long, slow, easy ride with a pro and we start going too hard, they, they just let, let us ride away. Mm-hmm. You know, they keep it very controlled. Yeah. But they're not sitting there going, uh-oh. My heart rate's 145, and I should be 143. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Yeah. This ride's off course. Right. At the same time, I think pros have a sense of their abilities and how hard they're pushing themselves and right. the rate at which they're working and all those things. T- to some degree, they have a much better sense of that than the average rider out there. So it's a little unfair to make that comparison. In a, in a sense. But, but but the point that I'm going to make is when you start getting really obsessed about those details, about the particulars of the wattage and the particulars of the TSS and what's my normalized power, 
I don't think that makes you better. I mm-hmm. think that gets you out of touch mm-hmm. with what is the overall purpose of the ride, what yes. is the overall purpose of my training, and that's when you get off track. You think you're actually being very disciplined and right. doing the right thing, but it's, again, it's, it's you're focusing on the trees and losing the forest. Right. No, I would agree with that. There can be data overload for sure, and it can distract you from the, the, the true um, impetus of why you're doing what you're doing and yeah. how to do it correctly. Right. I've been answering these questions for a while now, especially since we did those episodes with Dr. Seiler, and I have found I'm kind of giving the same answer again and again and again, which is great because it means there, there are certain questions that everybody has, and, and that's what's motivated this episode. And taking that big step back, here's what it comes down to. There are three types of rides. Simple. Particularly in the polarized model, but I'm going to say most models... These are your three types of rides. There's a couple exceptions, and we'll take some time to get to the exceptions. But here they are. Mm-hmm. There's first type of ride, long, slow distance. Second type of ride, high-intensity interval work. Yep. Third type of ride, which this is where I find most athletes really, really struggle, is short and easy. Your yep. recovery, recovery rides, your easy rides. Yep. Spinning out the legs. Yep. And there is a value to those, so, but we'll get to those. So pretty much this episode, we're just going to go through these three types of rides and, and talk about them in detail, why they're important, how to execute them. And if you can execute these three types effectively, figure out how to organize your week to balance these three types of rides, that's most of what you need to know about training. And I think some of the beauty and, and, and simplicity of this is there's three types of rides. Every time you go out for a ride, you pick from those three in terms of the purpose of the ride. And right. each ride should have a distinct purpose. That's a really important point. Doing these rides as effectively as possible is really critical. And so I actually put in some notes here. There was this uh, 2011 study where they they got hold of riders' Strava data for a year, and they looked at pros relative to amateurs to see how pros train differently from amateurs. And here was their primary um, observation. In pros, there was a lower variability and higher intensity of intervals. What they mean by the lower variability is when they were doing a long, slow, easy ride, Mm -hmm. they stayed in zone one Mm -hmm. the whole ride. There was no attacks. There was no big five-minute efforts. They just kept it slow. Pretty disciplined. Right. When they got to interval work, though, it was all red. It was all, I'm killing myself. Yeah. And you really saw them be very disciplined. So they knew what each type of ride was about, and they executed it very, very effectively. Yeah. And I think we'll, we'll get into this too. Those three types of rides go hand in hand. They prepare you for executing the other types of rides at, at a high quality. So yeah. you're not coming in. Of course, there are exceptions, and we'll we'll talk about those. But what you're doing on day one is is leading into day two and the rest of the week, and and they're preparing you for getting the most out of each of the types of rides. We need to have some sort of zones to give you as we're we're talking about these types of rides, and since there are dozens and dozens of different zone systems that are all very different. And there's five zones models and seven zone models and nine zone models. Uh, I think we just need to see, stick with something simple. So we're just going to use Dr. Seiler's three zone model. 
which is based on physiology, which is what I really like about it. Right. And it basically says we, we have two key physiological markers. We, we have our, our upper threshold, what people call your, your anaerobic threshold, or everybody refers to as FTP. Or FTP threshold. Right. Yeah. FTP isn't quite. You know, it's pretty close. Yeah. Um, but really, we're talking about that when you're, you're talking about, hey, I was riding that threshold. Yeah. That's that upper marker. There is a lower threshold called your aerobic threshold. Uh, which is a little harder to measure. Um, that's where you need to get into lab to really find it. But it tends to be right around 85% of your anaerobic threshold. Mm-hmm. So, for example, again, going by heart rate, if your anaerobic threshold was 172, your aerobic threshold is going to be around a heart rate of 145. Mm-hmm. This goes back to a really old episode of Fast Talk. But let's listen to Dr. San Milan explain why it's so important we use zones based on physiology. So, um, yeah, as, as Trevor uh, very well mentioned earlier, is that, um, yeah, you'd really want to train different energy systems, right? And, 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 and each energy system, and that's kind of like a, what it should be. That's like the virtue of coaching, right? You, you want to target each energy system differently, right? And for that, ideally, you translate that into training zones, right? That's why you have your training zones because each training zone addresses one different energy system. And that's where like uh, your intervals are as high as possible. You're not really identifying or targeting that one specific training uh, energy system. Because that's the whole thing, you know, people, oh, this is your training zone one, zone two, zone three, and you ask many coaches, and what does zone two mean or zone five or whatever the nomenclature you want to call it, what happens at that intensity, right? And, uh, People don't know, and each intensity, it, it just relates to one energy system. Absolutely. That's, for example, what we do in the lab. We clearly identify the different zones, and we translate that into heart rate, into watch, into pace for runners, right? But there's a purpose of its zone. That's why it's important to understand what zones mean. And likewise, I, I think definitely, you know, as you know very well, there are so many coaches that don't know what zones are either. So I would also ask athletes to ask their coaches what zone two and zone three is, right? So that, that um, uh, you know, there's like a better debate or understanding among the entire community, whether you're a coach or you're an athlete. Back to the show. So the three zones are zone one is up to that aerobic threshold. Zone two is between the two thresholds. And zone three is a, a, above your lactate threshold. It's, so, um, it's very simple. It, it is really very is. simple. And it and the beauty goes beyond that in that it, it does correspond with things happening inside your body. Right. Now now that we've said that's really simple, later on when we get into <laughs> high intensity work, it's not quite that simple at the upper end. And that's been confusing some people, but we'll, we'll get to that. But one other really important thing to know about is there have been studies looking at autonomic stress. So when you're measuring heart rate variability, this is one of the things you're looking at, how well you're, you're recovered. Autonomic stress is going to affect your, your heart rate variability. It's going to affect your recovery. And there's, there's been a decent amount of research showing that it's kind of like an on-off switch. And once you go over that aerobic threshold, you're starting to accumulate um, autonomic stress. Below that aerobic threshold, almost none. Mm-hmm. And that's some studies show it a little above the aerobic threshold. Some studies show it right at the aerobic threshold. But the point is when you are training at or below that aerobic threshold, you aren't building up stress and fatigue the way you are at those higher intensities. Right. Um, so they, it's not going to push burnout the mm-hmm. way higher intensity work will. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in a clip from Dr. Steven Seiler talking about this stress, which he refers to as training monotony. 
Well, it, it goes back to some really good research by guys. The Bruin was a Bel- I believe, Belgian in- investigator that studied horses. Carl Foster has done some work. Others have done this work around the idea of training monotony. That one of the best ways to overtrain an organism is to subject them to just daily stress that that is uh, at the same level and and that's that's what happened with horses is that when horses when their easy days were made harder they fell apart when their hard days were made harder they 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 were able to handle it and so the concept of training monotony i think goes right to the heart of why polarized training works is that we we want to we want to keep a lot of the training what i would call under the stress radar we want to train signal adaptation at the, at the muscular level without turning on this big stress response because every time you turn that on if you turn it on repeatedly then you actually what actually happens is the body starts to lose the ability to mobilize you start to stagnate you start to lose your last gear I, I totally agree with what you're saying, and, and I think that's what elite athletes are very good at is is managing the the training so that they don't ex- turn on that stress response too often. But when they do, then they they kick butt, but they stay under the radar a lot with low intensity training. All right, back to the show. Well, why don't we jump in and talk a little bit more about each of these three ride types in detail? I think. Trevor, you'll be able to explain what's happening physiologically, the intent here for each of the three ride types. I can also bring in some experiential, and of course you can too, but this is the this is the style of training I employed for dirt, preparing for Dirty Kanza last year to, to quite a degree. So and I can. Chris got really grouchy with me. I'm like, Chris, go out and do a five hour ride really slow. He's like, this is so boring. Yeah. Well, Why am I doing this? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's something, honestly, uh, some of this stuff takes some getting used to. Uh, it's, a, it's a different feeling to what people are used to in terms of training. Um, it goes back to that if you're not feeling the pain, what are you gaining? Right. And you have to understand that things are happening inside the body, inside um, all the way down to the cellular level that are a benefit. You just might not perceive it as such, especially in the first couple hours of those rides. So yeah. we'll get into that. And if you're not used to these rides, they're boring. People struggle with them. Yeah, I've worked with a lot of athletes who, who had no base fitness. And when I started giving them the long, slow rides, they were just like, please, give me anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll do intervals and put bamboo under my fingernails for 30 minutes <laughs> afterwards. But it produces the same thing. Yeah. Just no more four-hour rides. Yeah. But I have found, and after about six, seven months, so the first year is a bit of a struggle. I always get this email or this call where they say, I used to hate these rides. Now they're my favorite <laughs> ride. And I find once you start doing them, you really... You, you can really enjoy them. Yeah. The key thing about these is these are done in zone one. So these are below, at or below that aerobic threshold. Yep. And I think it's really important to keep it steady, which a lot of, uh, again, when I find somebody has no base fitness, the first response I get is, I almost fell over. Mm-hmm. These were so painfully slow. Right. Which they are. You didn't fall over. They didn't fall over because they were so hard. They fell over because they were too easy and they felt like they were going too slow. Right. Yeah. But you just have to keep going. Right. 
And, I, I, you know, there's a quick addendum here that if you live in hilly terrain and you're out doing one of these rides, I mean, first of all, if you're trying to do one of these long, slow rides, don't climb an HC climb. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really fit together. You know, pick a flatter, better route. But if you hit a climb and you go a little over that aerobic threshold, that's fine. You know, we're, we're talking ideals here, but then there's reality. And, yeah. Um, sometimes you just, you, it's unavoidable. But don't suddenly take it up to a 180 heart rate on that climb. And, and I think it's, it's worth noting the first couple hours of these rides may feel slow. But if you are doing them as intended, don't want to put a, a figure on it necessarily, but at some point you'll hit a point where you're going to start to feel this fatigue that is not like fatigue that you feel from hard intervals. Right. It's just going to be this sort of whole body fatigue. And it continues on to get to get more apparent and more taxing as you go into your fourth hour, your fifth hour, your sixth hour, if you're Trevor, your eighth hour, your ninth hour. Because <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> What's wrong with because that? Because you're used to it. That, yeah. Yeah. And so I get asked all the time, how long should these rides be? And the answer to that is it depends. If you're a pro, yeah, you got to go out and do a six hour ride. If you're brand new to cycling, you might get this effect two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And doing a six hour ride is just too much for you. Yeah. But I think Chris hit on the key thing. You know the length was right by you get home, you say, I never really went hard. I stayed in zone one, but I'm feeling that ride. I'm a little bit tired. Yep. And it's it's the length that should be fatiguing you, not the intensity. Mm-hmm. And sorry, there, there I, we had a podcast a while ago talking about the importance of these long rides. I got this great email from somebody who said... Oh, I get it. I'm totally sold. I see the value of these long rides, but you made the point that the the, the real gains are in the the last hour or two. So, is there a way of skipping those first two to three <laughs> hours and just getting right to that final hour? Right. There are no shortcuts here. That's that's the truth of the matter. You can't skip ahead, unfortunately. And let's talk a little bit about what's going on there. And this is. When you do these rides, do them by heart rate. Don't do them by power. This is my bias, but I I believe very strongly in this. It it totally makes sense. You're going to explain it, and it it totally makes sense when you do. Remember that power is a measure of what's going on in the bike. So it says, here's how hard you're going relative to everybody else. It's a mechanical thing. But it doesn't say what's going on in your body. Right. Heart rate is a measure of what's going on in your body. It shows how hard you are going. It's like the tachometer. Right. There is an effect called cardiac drift. Uh, it also can be referred to as the slow component mm-hmm. um, of VO2. But basically what it means is if you went out for a five-hour ride and you just sat at 180 watts, you might start that ride at, let's say, 130 beats per minute. But by the end of that ride, you might be 145, even 150. Your right. heart rate's going to slowly drift up. Mm-hmm. This is cause, one of the causes of dehydration. But a really important cause when you're doing these long rides is muscle fiber fatigue. So your, your fibers start to get stressed. They start to get damaged. So you start recruiting more fibers, and that raises your heart rate. So this is, again, why it's important to do these rides by heart rate. Because if you did that whole ride at 180 watts... You might be zone one at the start of that ride, but you might be solidly in the middle of zone two by the end right, of that ride. Right. This is also why these long rides can be so beneficial. When you start out, you really work in those slow twitch muscle fibers. But as they fatigue, you start to recruit more and more fibers, and you will start to recruit your fast twitch muscle fibers. 
Then you're starting to make your fast twitch muscle fibers wor uh, work aerobically, mm -hmm. which is a great gain for a cyclist, not a great gain if you're a 100-meter sprinter. You don't right. want to do that. <laughs> but for a cyclist, you are forcing fast twitch muscle fibers to work in a way they don't normally work. So that's going to be a gain. The other great thing about this is normally to hit those fast twitch muscle fibers to really work them, you have to do high intensity work, which produces that autonomic stress. Mm -hmm. So here is a way of training fast twitch muscle fibers without actually generating any autonomic stress so that you can keep training the next day and the day after. Right. And the thing you'll notice too is the more frequently you do these rides, the longer you'll go or, or just you'll reduce the amount of cardiac drift over time. So when you first start doing these rides, you may start out and you'll see a 20% increase in cardiac drift. And so by the end of the rides, you, if you're keeping your heart rate at where it should be, you are having to slow down considerably because you, you don't, you want to, your power, you just can't put out as much power at the same heart rate. Six months later or less, you can push your body to produce the same amount of power and keep that heart rate down. So by the end of a six-hour ride, you're actually maybe only 5% reduced in terms of that drift. One of the biggest indicators I look for in my athletes to say they had a successful base season and we're now ready to start really focusing on race fitness um, and move out of the base phase is I want to be able to see them do a four- to five-hour ride with minimal cardiac drift. So, you know, it's always the same. Get them on the bike at the, in November or beginning of December, and you just see this enormous cardiac drift. That, mm -hmm. that heart rate just going way up relative to power. Um, but by sometime in February, early March, I want to see that be much more of a flat line. Mm -hmm. And that's, these rides are how you do it. And it's stay in that zone one. Just stay there. Do it by heart rate. Go long enough that you are feeling fatigue. And the other really important thing about these rides, which every, this, this is where people are going to cringe and hate me. <laughs> if avoid, they don't already. Well, fair enough. <laughs> people throw things at me when I go to the supermarket. I'm just used to it. Avoid stops. Yeah. Minimize them. Minimize. Don't pee minimize. your pants just to stay on the bike. Yeah, no, you can stop and pee. That's okay. But the coffee shop in the middle yes. of a long ride, right. that's no longer a good, effective long ride. That is now two rides, and you aren't seeing the same gains. You really want to push this cardiac drift. You want to get those muscle fibers cycling so that you're starting to recruit fast-twitch muscle fibers. You can't give them those long rests. And that, that has a, been a question that has come up, you know, two a days, could I do two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon for, say, somebody that's commuting? Yeah, you still, you know, this came out of Dr. Seiler's research that ultimately it's just accumulating time. And the more time you do in zone one, the, the more gains that you're going to see. There is a truth to that. Um, there, there is a stimulus on that PCG1 alpha system, which we Ooh. keep talking about. Um, there's actually a bunch of other effects, but that's that we, we figured that's the one we'll talk about on the show. Two days have a benefit, but there is a benefit to the long ride that you can't get from two days, and right. that's the one. It's the fatiguing those muscle fibers so that you start seeing muscle fibers cycling. Yep. One of the interesting things I remember from uh, one of our interviews with Dr. Seiler is, you know, in his research, he he's been studying. A lot of since he he, he works and um, at the university in Norway is in really world class the best of the best Nordic skiers 
and and a lot of them will train uh, in the off season by running and things like that. Or and he's also working with some elite runners from from Norway and studying them. And he has gone out with them. He's no slouch, but he's not a world class athlete. But he'll go out with them on some of their long, slow efforts, rides or skis, and he can keep up with them. Yeah. Because for those elite athletes, they're not going hard in a sense. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around it, but we're telling them to deliberately go easy. So I still remember when I was training at the, the National Center in Canada, the, the head coach, Hushang Amiri, he had to go over to Africa for two weeks. And we always had a, a Wednesday and a Saturday ride where he would follow us in the car and we'd go that good zone one pace. Mm -hmm. Or when I arrived and we had guys like Swain there, I was probably zone four in the three zone <laughs> model trying to hang on to them. Uh, but for them, it was uh, definitely zone one. Hushang left and said, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to be here on Saturday, so go to the Saturday group ride, you know, the, 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 the one that all the, the local riders go to, the master's riders go to. And nobody wanted to go, and they all got upset. And you saw these top, top pros saying, I don't want to go to that ride. Not because they're like, I don't want to ride with master's athletes. The complaint was, it's too hard. Too hard, yep. Yeah, a lot of group rides. And there's a place, there's a time and a place for group rides, for sure. Yep. But oftentimes it's not in uh, the base season when you're trying to get these long rides in. If you have a group of friends that is doing the same thing, you can certainly go out and get the benefits of these long, slow rides together as a group to make it a little bit more fun. But a lot of times group rides are not the place because people are aggressive and attacking and riding too hard and they might stop several times. So you're just not getting the benefits out of those rides like you should. Let's hear what Dr. John Hawley has to say about the value of the long ride. The longer you go, the more you tend towards free fatty acid oxidation. But, but again, you've got to remember that unless you're doing a five-hour race at that pace, it doesn't necessarily help racing all it does is build up extra capillaries again it gets the muscle used to using fat and turning on beta oxidation and all these you know adaptations of the muscle which you know about so yes that there is a point to that but again when i send you the articles you'll see that if it's a race situation at the end of the day even if it's a three-hour race it's carbohydrate dependent and not fat dependent having said that having the ability to utilize fat at the highest rates possible uh, is an advantage uh, in, in long endurance events. The great New Zealand coach, Arthur Lydiard, you know, coached uh, probably half a dozen Olympic gold medalists, you know, he'd even have runners like Peter Snell, who won the 800 and 1500, doing very long Sunday morning runs, sometimes up to 20 miles. And Snell, if you talk to him now, I know Peter reasonably well, he'd say, look, I'm not not quite sure why I was doing it at the time, but now, you know, he's an exercise physiologist at Southwestern Texas. And he said, look, you know, now I know the physiology behind this. The other thing that the rides do is go through the whole fiber population. If you just go out and ride for an hour, yeah, you'll tap into some slow twitch fibers and you do this and you do that. But by going along and almost going to exhaustion at that submaximal pace, you are then asking the muscles to recruit the slow twitch fibers the fast twitch A and the fast twitch B. And unless you do very high intensity intervals, I don't think you do that. So you've got two ways of tapping into that fiber population. Either go long and slow to exhaustion or, or basically, you know, do high intensity and wipe them all out anyway. So I think another advantage of the long, long ride uh, is, to, is to get all the fibers active. And at the end of those rides, 
you're calling on fibers like the two A's and two B's, which aren't that used or aren't that good to doing that endurance. And I think that's an important thing as well to to make sure that all the all the fiber population has been recruited and has that potential to to use as much fat as it actually can. The two B fiber isn't very good at that, but um, use use everything you've got type thing. And that's another reason for doing a long ride. We often do rise to exhaustion in the lab and, you know, they're fine for the first hour. You get to the second hour, it gets a bit tougher. And you get to the third hour, the workload hasn't changed. But, of course, the fiber recruitment has. And 2B fibers don't like working at 250 watts. They prefer working at 550 for 30 seconds. So it's a really hard ask of the muscle. But only by using the muscle and driving it to that point do you actually recruit it. So, And I think that's a very important reason. In fact, I put that right up there as with, with fat burning. The recruitment pattern is vital. Back to the show. Okay, so one final addendum on these long, slow rides is, well, I said they're in that zone one, so below your aerobic threshold. The, the question you're going to ask is, well, how slow? My answer is there. there's actually, at least when, when I'm with my athletes, I coach, there's two types of these long, slow rides. I call them LSD and LSS, which makes absolutely zero sense. But when I tried to rename them to something that made sense, all my athletes protested, told me I couldn't change the name. Generally, there's that just long, slow distance, which is anywhere below that aerobic threshold. Though, for example, my aerobic threshold is 144 beats per minute. I tend to do these rides around 120. So they're slow. They're really easy. And it's just doing time on the bike. I do those rides particularly in December, November, even a little into January uh, when you're way far away from the season and you're just trying to get time on the bike. The other type of ride that's a very powerful ride, and, and I'll give a call out to Dr. Inigo San Milan, who's a big proponent of these rides, and really he was the one who introduced me to them, are these aerobic threshold rides. Uh, which is right at or just below aerobic threshold. So again, my aerobic threshold is 144 beats per minute. I try to, when I do these rides, keep my heart rate around 136 up to 146 at the max. Uh, so the feel of these rides is you're not hurting, you're not killing yourself. It's just slightly uncomfortable, but very sustainable. But if you do it for three, four, five hours, depending on your level, by the time you finish that ride, you're, you're dragging your feet a little bit. You're feeling it. These are powerful rides, so don't overdo them. This is not a ride that you can do all the time. So even as I get closer to the season, I might have my athletes do one ride very close to that aerobic threshold, but the other ride is more that LSD, keep it 10, 15 beats per minute below the aerobic threshold and don't destroy yourself. So that gets us to, we, we've now talked about the long ride. Yep. Let's get to high intensity training. Absolutely. So. And some people love this stuff. Some people, this is all they want to do. Yep. The, and, and I get this. Like I don't have nearly as much time as I used to have to train. So you get on the bike and you go, I want to maximize it. And there is a belief. I have limited time. It's hard to find an hour to get on the bike. So if I have that hour, I need to have my tongue hanging out and, and get some value out of it. Why don't we start with, and I, I won't give his name, but I'm going to embarrass one of my new athletes. Uh, I just started working recently with a, a new athlete who took that approach of, I'm going to get on Zwift every day and hop in a training race mm -hmm. or do intervals. And he was doing intensity five, six days a week. 
The Time Crunch Cyclist. The Time Crunch Cyclist. And when I first started working with him, I asked him for his basic variables. What's your, your threshold heart rate? What's your max heart rate? What's your resting heart rate? The and, heart rate guy asking for heart rates. Yeah, well, I got <laughs> power numbers too, but those were easy to, to figure out just by looking at his files. He thought his max heart rate was right around 167. Pretty low. I then said, you're doing way too much high intensity. And it, it took me a long time to get him on board, but basically said two high intensity sessions per week. The rest is easy. Mm-hmm. Boy, did he struggle with easy. But I got him on board. And all of a sudden, we were seeing his heart rate get up to 180. There was some suppression beforehand. He was training yeah. so fatigued all the time that he just never saw what he could actually hit. Mm-hmm. So we're having all sorts of strength. Like right now, we're in the middle of the winter. I told him, you don't want to be hitting your best numbers in the winter because yeah. that's a sign that your your timing's off. Well, he's hitting his best numbers, <laughs> not because he, he's particularly fit right now, just because he's actually rested yeah. and he can hit decent numbers. So what you see when you do too much high intensity is your body reacts and it puts limiters on you. Mm-hmm. And so you're never really doing true intensity. Yeah. It's, you're compromising those those workouts and your performances. Right. That's the common question. How much high intensity? Uh, if you are employing a polarized model, the idea is 80-20, so 20% in the zone three. But that's 80-20 in terms of for every eight low-intensity workouts you do, you do two high-intensity. If you actually distribute it, took your, your power distribution for the week, it's... 10% or less of your time mm-hmm. in zone three. Yep. It's not a lot of time. right? But if you don't want to look at it that way, because that can get hard to figure out, there's plenty of research showing that two high-intensity sessions per week is ideal. You see no additional gains with three. right? And you start doing four or more, you're really pushing that autonomic stress, and you, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to burn out very rapidly or you're going to see what I saw with my, my new athlete, that none of those sessions are really truly high intensity. You bring the ceiling down, right. in a sense. You plateau at that level and can't go beyond it. Yep. The point with these is to not do tons. It's to just have those two, but make them really high quality. Right. So you yep. want to do them recovered. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do them fatigued. Uh, you want to spread them out. You don't want to do your two high-intensity sessions on Tuesday and Wednesday and then have the rest of the week right. spin, spinning around. And, and and to bring it back to Dr. St- Dr. Seiler's story about the athletes he's worked with and trained with, those easy rides that they were doing were easy, but the workouts they were doing were completely epic, like unbelievably hard. Right. There, we're talking world-class athletes, of course, but that's that's the dichotomy that we're talking about here. Yep. And even there, you know, there are times to absolutely rip yourself apart, but you don't always have to do that. Yeah. There was actually a study that came out a couple of weeks ago, and this isn't the only study to show this, but it was on weightlifting where they had some athletes do, so they had two groups. Both groups did the same exercises. One group did five sets. Mm-hmm. The other group did one set. Mm-hmm. And so the group that was doing five sets, they were spending about four hours total per week in the weight room. Uh, the group that was doing one set spent less than an hour in the weight room per week. And both groups saw the same strength gains. Mm. That's 
weight room, but there is a similar effect with interval work. With each increasing set, you're seeing less and less gains, but you're generating more and more autonomic stress yeah. that's going to take more time to recover. Right. So there is a sweet spot of do two sets, maybe three sets if you're higher level, make them really high quality, make them really hurt. I, I was just talking with somebody a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about sprints. That's right. They, they were a commuter and talking about how they, sprint, oh, yes. they sprinted out of every single lights. And, and is that good training? And I said, look, when I do sprints, I hate them because at the end of each sprint, I feel like I am choking. I am yeah. gasping for yeah. air. That's if how much not, they then, should hurt. Exactly. Same thing with a four-minute effort. If you're getting to the end of those and you're like, okay, let's do the next one, then you probably didn't do it right or your body is not allowing you to do it at the level that you should. Right. I had an athlete who wasn't seeing much gains in the top end. I just started working with him, and he was showing me these workouts he was doing. He was doing like five sets of one-minute intervals, and he's going, I can really tolerate a lot of high-end work. And so I modified the workout. I gave him two sets of one-minute intervals, just six one-minute intervals with one-minute recoveries. And he complained. He's like, I'm not going to get anything out of yeah. this. And I gave him some... You can't drop below this wattage. Here's how to do the intervals, you know, and, and explain to him, you know, I want these really high intensity. He couldn't get through the two sets. <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah. He, his email back to me was, I've never done something that's hurt so much in my life. Yeah. That brings up a, a good point about one's ability to be able to finish the workout. You need to know what is appropriate in a sense of, I can accomplish this get right to the edge, but you don't want to create a workout that's so hard you can't do it. You can't right. complete it. There's a certain point where you just can't do it with sufficient quality. And like I said, all you're doing is generating more autonomic stress and you're not getting any gains. Yep. So when I give athletes high intensity work, I always have quality requirements. So if I have them do one minute intervals, I say, you, for example, I might say with one athlete, these need to be done over 420 watts. Mm -hmm. And if you start dropping below that, you're done for the day. Yep. Turn around, go home. Yep. Dr. Holly is a big proponent of high-intensity work and has done a lot of research on it. But he shares the view that it should be limited. Yeah, and, you know, Steve's done some great work on the polarized training. And that if you look mm -hmm. at the rowers and the cyclists and probably even the runners, you know, there's this huge volume of, uh, I mean, let's just call it steady-state aerobic work. And and it's peppered in between with very bits of high intensity or even super maximal intensity. And again, that seems to be what works for the athlete. I'm not sure you need to, to do intervals all year round. I'm not sure really how long you need to do intervals for. You know, if you want to get really, really sharp, my guess is you can probably do this in three to six weeks. And if you look at a periodized training program, if you're looking at that intensity, uh, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't do two sessions of intensity a day and i'd probably only do two maximum of three a week anyway you know with cyclists probably probably two when we've done our training interventions uh eight times five minute sets with the cyclists which again it's in the literature you can read that you know we've only done we've done three a week and that's that's been tops um but any more and i think you probably go over the top i, I really do think two to three sessions at the top level is, is all you can handle of those real intense stuff. And when I say intense, I mean glycogen stripping, high carbohydrate, right. high absolute power outputs or speeds, and, you know, the actual work time, probably 30 to 40 minutes maximum. Back to the show. So we're hoping to get Dr. Seiler on for a third episode, of, and, and that's entirely what this is going to be about, because when people talk about his zone three, like I said, this is where it gets a little 
complicated. Yeah. Because first of all, since he's not, he, he's dealing more with runners and cross country skiers who you don't attack in races. You don't sprint as much. It, it's more steady. His zone three only goes up to VO2 max. So mm-hmm. things like Tabata sprints, they're not in his zone system. Mm-hmm. When he was in here, or when we, when we had him on, we had an offline conversation about Tabatas, and he wasn't that big a fan. And we'll we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. The other thing to remember is, we've said zone three is lactate threshold and above, but actually, in his research, when he was figuring out the the um, the distribution, he either measured it as above four millimoles. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, above four millimoles of lactate in your blood, which correlates fairly well with threshold, but it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Some people are above that. Some people are a little below. He also, when he designs his zones or when he was, uh, you read his research on, on interval work, he was doing it as percentages of heart rate. And I believe his zone three was 85. No, what was it? It was, I think, 90% of max heart rate and above. Don't quote me on this. I can't, can't remember, remember exactly. But that can actually put you a little below your actual lactate threshold. And it puts a lot of athletes below where they feel their FTP is. Dr. Seiler did this fascinating study of four by four minute intervals, four by eight minute intervals, and four by 16 minute intervals. And he puts all those pretty squarely in zone three, even though those four by 16 minute intervals we're at a heart rate and a wattage that's below lactate threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go a little below lactate threshold and still really be in that polarized model, still really be doing what, what would be considered zone three. Quality intervals. zone three work. And you know some of the explanations for this is if you're doing four by 16 minute intervals, even though the, the wattage and heart rate doesn't quite match up, you're probably going to be getting up above four millimoles. And yeah. he has his athletes do those four by 16s as hard as they can. It's just there's 16 minutes. You yep. can't do them as hard as you can do a four-minute interval. That's a pretty damn good workout, if yes. you have a, especially if you have a, 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 a climb to do them on, you know, a good, steady climb that takes 16-plus minutes. Yeah, they hurt. Going outside of Dr. Seiler's research and the polarized model, there is a lot of research out there showing that if you're trying to train your lactate clearance, yeah, it is at its highest at about 95% of your lactate threshold. And above that 95% of your lactate threshold, it starts to decline. So there is a real value for your top-end race fitness to train just a little below threshold. Yep. And uh, you saw that when, we did the, when I did the hour record training. We were trying yep. to target that exact point right around 95%. And all of the workouts and it just, the, the philosophy being, it just helps push that up more and more. And it wasn't just me, uh, Neil Henderson, when he was coaching Rowan Dennis for his hour record was doing the exact type of work, that exact same type right. of work. So, And you will actually find a lot of top end high level coaches do a lot of that work. So when we had Sebastian Weber in here, uh, when he was coaching Tony Martin, it was yep. a lot of low cadence, just sub-threshold work. Yep. We actually did record part of the conversation with Dr. Seiler about the difficulty of figuring out threshold heart rate and why he uses percentages of max heart rate. Let's listen in. Again, we have some typical values, but the individual variation is is big enough that we don't like to just throw out 
blank numbers. But again, like I said, that 60-minute power will probably put the athlete pretty close to 90% of heart rate peak, you know, in that 87 to 92, 3 range. The average will end up being probably 88 or something because the first 15 minutes probably feel pretty okay. And then, then you, you know, the drift starts moving you into a heart rate zone that's more typical of interval training, you know, the low end of interval training. So the, the, the drift of heart rate is, is kind of tricky. So it's hard to, you know, we have to decide in a 60-minute power test where, what heart rate do we say that was my maximum lactate steady state heart rate? Yeah, I will say I tend to look for a point where the heart rate's fairly level. If somebody does a test and their heart rate is rising the entire time, that to me tells me they were actually a little over their threshold, a little over LT2, and that's too high a heart rate. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And that, that, like for me today, I found that I, once I got to about 90, I stayed there for most of the time. Uh, right at the end, it's crept up to 91 or two, I think. And then, so I agree with you that, that you should be able to find a, you know, a, a big chunk of a, of a 60 minute power test where heart rate is pretty darn stable. And, and then I would also say for these low intensity rides, if, if at least if you're on a, a trainer and you're clearly in a LT, you know, a low intensity modus, then heart rate should really stay flat. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's a that's a good quality indicator of the session that yep you're you're you're, you're where you need to be you're at seventy percent of heart rate peak or you know something like that and it's just it's just staying nice and flat. Yeah, I have noticed in in the research you always use the peak. Yeah, because it's just it's just a, a a reference. Otherwise, you end up kind of taking percentages of percentages, and and then most people get a bit confused. So I try to just take a percentage of a hundred. 100 is, you know, heart rate peak. It's the highest heart rate that you see during cycling ever. What percentages would you have uh, LT2 and LT1 at? Yeah, so then based on that, then I would say LT1 in terms of where I want them riding at in a in a low intensity ride, they're probably going to be at somewhere around 70% of heart rate peak. They may be as low as early on in the ride 60 three or four, and then they drift a little bit up, but they, they shouldn't go above 75% of heart rate peak for the whole ride. Okay. That's, that's a typical low intensity ride. So um, you would have LT1, the, the top end of it be about 75% of your max heart rate. Yeah. It, it's, it's ballpark. It, yeah. It's, if they're really well-trained, it might be a little bit higher, but, it, but again, I, I think it's reasonable to start with something conservative and then just mm. over the weeks and months adjust a little bit. So 75 is probably not too bad as an, as an estimate. And then, and then steady state will be more like 85, 86, 87, mm-hmm. okay. the, the LT2 right. as a percentage of heart rate peak. I was watching yesterday the European Championships in running, and, and a Norwegian kid, he's 17, the day before yesterday, he won the 1,500 meters in the European Championships. Again, he's 17, youngest ever to win a gold mm-hmm. medal in the European Championships in 84 years. And then 24 hours later, he ran the 5,000 meter, and he won that too. Wow. And then <laughs> 17 years old and just dominated. And and he, when they, they were doing a kind of a package on him, and he's running, and I was thinking, damn, he's running slow. I could run with him, Uh, you know, but, 
<laughs> but he was running a you know an easy session and 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 it was easy. I could even look at it and say, well, he's actually running really easy. But I also know that when these guys do their hard interval sessions, they are just absolutely inhuman. Back to the show. This this will probably this is like a, a bias thing, I guess, too. But it gets back to the simplicity aspect of it. A lot of people like to do complicated things when it comes to intervals over unders and and Tabatas and things like that. And there's a time and a place for those. But you like eight minute repeats. Right. We have you, you brought up that question of Tabata intervals, which are those like 20 tens. Yeah. Or 20 seconds 40, on, 10, 10 seconds off. Right. Yeah. You know, short, hard intervals or, you know, something else that's really popular is the one and two minute intervals. Yeah. And there is a place for those. But I did find it interesting that offline conversation with Dr. Seiler. Um, an offline conversation with, with uh, Sebastian Weber and several other people said, yeah, there is a place for those, but you see most of the gains from that type of interval work in about six to eight sessions. And there's a lot of research to back this. Mm -hmm. So starting Tabatas in November yeah. and doing them all winter and doing them all season, there's no real benefit to that. Yep. Doing those hard one-minute intervals all winter or for months and months and months, there's no real benefit. These are the intervals that you should be doing just before the start of your season and into your season. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm giving you a bias, but it's a bias where we'll, we'll again put references up and there's a lot of research to, to back this. Let's hear what Dr. Seiler has to say about really high intensity work. You see all these magical recipes for training sessions with breakdowns and buildups and all that. And I want to say, does the, does the muscle cell really understand all of your complexity? You know, because yes. when it comes when it comes down to a training is about creating a signal for adaptation, you know, but we've turned it into this high, advanced hieroglyphics, you know. Right. So, and actually thinking that you have a, a study from last year where you said that you can essentially skin the cat a bunch of ways with different types of intervals, but the the people who saw the probably the the least gains were the people who really mixed it up. Yeah, we didn't expect that in that particular study, but 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 just to kind of get to the essence of that is is that interval training is fairly straightforward. You need to accumulate minutes at a reasonably high intensity, and so you try to find the balance between a high intensity that you can do for quite a few minutes and then what we tended to see was is that around 90 percent 91 2 percent of heart rate max was high enough to get good adaptations and then but at the same time you could be under control and collect minutes a guy named david bishop down in australia is even starting to collect some data that suggests that conditions associated with very high blood lactate may actually have some inhibitory effects on adaptive signaling which which kind of really for me fits in well with this issue of the, not letting the interval sessions get too high intensity. You know, finding that sweet spot on intensity that's we typically see it around 90%, but there's something that changes from about 90, 92% of heart rate max to 95, 96, where you just really start to fall apart. You know, you, you start to really have a lot of of uh, inhibitory responses in the muscle. You would say in the typical, you're just full of blood lactate. You're you're blowing up. And, and that doesn't seem to be an adaptive state. So what's your feeling then about something like Tabata intervals? Well, I, I, again, it depends. If I'm, cross, if I'm preparing for a CrossFit competition or this kind of thing, then I'm probably going to do some of those very short, very high intensity intervals. But if I'm trying to build my metabolic engine, build my VO2 max for 
30 minute races for an hour of power for, you know, then I'm going to tend to do longer intervals. I just, that's what we see. We want to accumulate minutes. We've done a little bit of research. We haven't published it yet, but we've compared micro intervals with longer intervals, you know, where you do these 30, 30 kind of things. And, and we don't see a difference. We don't see any magic there. Uh, it, the body is not that sensitive. Maybe the cyclist says, yeah, but it's great because I'm getting all these accelerations. Well, okay, maybe. So I'm not going to argue with you on that. But from an adaptation standpoint, just in terms of cardiovascular adaptation, it's over. We can't see a difference. It's not particularly sexy. I get that. You know, I, I've told people that my research can, tends to destroy all the sexy theories because uh, it's pretty <laughs> it, it's pretty straightforward. You know, it's it's keep it simple, scientist or coach. But we just don't find these shortcuts. Uh, do collect the, the minutes, do the work, get the rest and, and balance the, the low and the high intensity work. These are the basic ingredients. So what's the effect of being too focused on short, high intensity? I have been seeing this interesting trend. I mean, living up in Toronto, I do a lot of time on Zwift. And you, I'm seeing more and more athletes doing tons and tons of these short, high-intensity intervals all winter. Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly on Zwift, you see guys getting on in Zwift every day and doing a training race. <laughs> right. And you're seeing these longer, closer-to-threshold intervals get out of favor five minutes, eight minutes, even 16 minutes. And maybe I'm, you know, I just had, the, I was actually talking with my old coach, Hushang Amiri, a couple of nights ago, and we were talking about this because he's seen it as well in junior athletes up in Canada. You, there's something that, that cyclists are starting to lose. And I see it on Zwift. So I get on there, I go and do my long thresholds, and there's a couple... Uh, climbs there, there's two 20 minute climbs and then there's this, this simulated Alpe d'Huez. And I will do those climbs at kind of four to 4.2 watts per kilogram, which is hard, but that's, that'd still get you popped in a pro race. Yeah. It's not it's anything extraordinary. Yeah. And I can usually take the leader's jersey hmm. on those climbs. But then every once in a while, just to have some fun, I jump into a training race on Zwift just to, to see where I'm at. And it's, it's January right now, so I'm certainly not in great fitness. The longest this winter I have lasted in one of those training races is five minutes. Yeah. They are 600 watts off the gun mm -hmm. and just attacking like crazy, and I get popped yep. instantly. And what I am seeing, at least this is my observation, everybody's building that really high-end, big attacking power, but they're losing that sustainable power. Mm -hmm. The one thing I guess I would say here is that – you can do whatever you want in terms of training. You could go on Zwift every day and do the race workouts, or the so, sorry, the training races. If you're starting at a low level, you're going to get better. Yes. And you're going to eventually plateau. What we're trying to say is if you actually want to maximize your human performance as an individual, there's a better way to doing it than that Zwift training race every day back to dr seiler just to to polish this off when we bring recreational cyclists in these guys like you were describing that train seven six seven eight hours a week full of energy full of desire and we put them through a, a very careful lactate profile test very typically 
what we see is is they have they have two two and a half even three millimolar change in their pants. I mean they they can't even get on the bike before they're already in that you know at a at a blood lactate level that we would typically describe as being threshold. They have what we call no metabolic control. But then after six or seven weeks of disciplined training intensity distribution, then we bring them back in, do the same lactate profile, and now they're able to do it. You know, they're at 1.2, 1.3 millimolar, you know, and it flattens out, shows that nice break. And then we have an athlete that's looking like they may not have the same power, but they have the same threshold picture, the curve, as the elite guys. It doesn't take that long, but but it has to do with this intensity distribution. And when these guys are always at their threshold, we tend to see a profile that is is also kind of starting at their threshold. If you understand what I'm saying, so it's quite it's quite interesting because the way we how quickly we can we can fix it if they will just listen and actually do the easy rides easy, believe and, and in longer, it. believe in it, yeah, 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 and and let that let that system develop. Trust the fact that it does – it is part of the equation. Trust me. I love interval training, so I am not a – I don't think I'm a wussy, as I call my son sometimes. You know, I, I like hard hard work. I've actually been able to push myself to puking level on intervals. So uh, don't get me wrong, but, but everything I've done wrong in my own training has had to do with training too hard. Yep. And when and and so that's the one thing I've learned from these top guys is that it's not about t- being tough; it's about being smart and uh, knowing when to unleash the beast and when to keep it at home and and focus on other aspects. You know, your breathing, every ride, every workout should be purposeful. So, the, kind of the summary of this high intensity stuff is two sessions per week, every once in a while, maybe three. Don't start doing four or five because you're not really doing high intensity anymore. If you actually manage to do high intensity, you're going to burn out yep. fast. Yep. So two a week. Plan your week so that you can do them recovered and do them really high quality. And then in terms of the type, yes, there's a value to sprint workouts. Yes, there's a value to Tabatas and one-minute intervals. And there is also a value to those longer five, eight, even longer uh, minute threshold work. Just remember that that higher intensity stuff, six to eight sessions to, to maximize the gains. Your meat and potatoes should be something else. Right. So, so that threshold work takes 12 to 14 weeks to truly see the gains. So that's if you're going to be polarized all year and you, you want to see gains in all your fitness, my suggestion is that longer threshold you know, just just around that anaerobic threshold work is what you should be doing for a lot of the winter. And in one of Seiler's studies, he said he, he found that the the best distribution, what you saw in the highest level cyclists, was one really high intensity session, one threshold session, mm. four low intensity workouts per week. Mm-hmm. Which brings us perhaps now to our final ride type, which is the slow recovery ride. Oh, the one that's going to kill people. <laughs> it seems people hate this. <laughs> it's a slow recovery ride. How can it kill them? I had an athlete mentally. Mentally, yeah. it melts their melts their brain. Oh, they, it just it didn't hurt. I don't get this. Why am I doing? I had this athlete. I spent years trying to get him to do these rides. His anaerobic threshold was two hundred and seventy watts, 
And when he had a, a low intensity, easy recovery ride on his plan, he would do it at 220 watts. Yeah. And I'm, I would just sit there and go, that's not easy. He goes, well, yeah. it doesn't feel that hard. Yeah. It should not feel hard. That's the, that's <laughs> the uh, simple way of putting it. It should definitely not feel hard at all. Right. You, you almost can't go too easy. You can't go too easy. So, so as this, long as you don't tip over. So this is me reaching out across, uh, through the mic to all of our listeners and taking you by the hand. And I'm going to say this. It is all right to not hurt. Yeah. It, it the, well. the, the No pain, no gain. It's great on the side of a Mountain Dew can. It's <laughs> not the way training works. Do they put that on the side of Mountain Dew cans? Oh, I don't know. They're always having their drink Mountain Dew and you'll be an Olympic athlete thing going on, which... Fair enough. I, I don't know many Olympic athletes that drink Mountain Dew. Sorry. I don't think they'll be sponsoring us for the next episode <laughs> no. either. Damn. That's, that could have been uh, pretty lucrative. Yeah, sorry. Not every ride needs to hurt. We have to get this concept out of our head. If it, if it didn't hurt, if I didn't do some sort of intensity, there were no gains. There was no value to that ride. I'm going to give you another way to look at this that's going to help, that will get rid of some of that stress when you do the easy ride. Yes, when you look at a ride in isolation, if you just do an hour slow and easy, and that's all you ever do, yeah, yeah, you're, of course, you're not going to be very fit. You have to look at these rides in the context of the week. And the idea is getting back to what I was saying before. It's making sure your two high-quality intensity sessions are high-quality. And if you, let's say, you do one on Tuesday and then you do another one on Thursday, which is pretty common with cyclists who have a a full-time job and then you do your long ride on the weekend. Mm -hmm. If on Wednesday you're hopping on Zwift and going into the the B ride in one of the training races and doing 220 watts, you're not going to recover effectively. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to do that Thursday high quality session with enough sufficient quality. Better to just not ride your bike. What is the value to that slow ride? One is, and this, this gets again back to that polarized model in Dr. Seidler's research, he's really found that accumulating time at zone one is accumulating time. We did talk about there are added value to long rides, but there's still an accumulation effect. Mm-hmm. So if all you ever did was two high quality sessions and a long ride, yeah, you're, you're going to get some fitness. But for some reason, you're going you're gonna to see more gains if you add in those slow rides and you get to that 80-20 split. Mm-hmm. Dr. Seiler says that easy training, including the long rides, builds biological durability. Let's hear his explanation. And, and, and there's, there was an interesting term that got, came out on Twitter just the other day that really summed it up for me in a lot of ways. It was call, they called it biological durability. Well, I like that. I, I, might, I might call it biological resilience. Same, same thing. And, that, and it seems to be just what we see in elite endurance athletes is that a lot of that volume, that low-intensity work, builds a durability in their system, both their, you know, the hormonal system, the muscular system, the cardiovascular system, they respond well to training, they recover from training, and they can mobilize multiple days in a row. And and that's just, there's no shortcut to building biological durability. You can't do it with just, a, you know, three days a week or of, of high intensity for 30 minutes. That makes you biologically fragile in a way. Uh, because you, you, it won't take very much to, to 
tweak your system and put you out out of play when you don't have that base training. Wow, that's a fantastic way to put it. I think so many recreationals are scared of not training hard enough, and that's not what they need to be afraid of. They, what they need to be thinking about is is training easy enough and long enough in the low-intensity sessions to build that biological durability so that those high-intensity sessions really can be developmental. They can really push and, 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 and handle them, and I, I think that's where a lot of athletes get it wrong. All right, back to the show. Personally, I think of these rides as almost like a massage, like just spinning yep. out the legs it's very easy. You come to a hill. If you're crawling, that's great. That's where you want to be. And you're not pushing yourself. There's no like tension in your body, in your legs. You're just spinning. And like I said, I think of them as a massage and I think of them as preparation for the other stuff later in the week. So let's talk about some of the signs behind that. I mean, you hear people say that all the time, and you had the coaches in the 60s and 70s saying you, you need these slow rides because they clear the lactic acid. Right. I, this, I was at a conference this weekend, and boy, did I make a guy uncomfortable. I, I went to this table of this guy that had the keto supplements, what you need for your keto or paleo diet. <laughs> and it was 2,000% of your recommended daily allowance of everything. <laughs> And, and how much did it cost? A lot of money. Yeah, I bet. And this guy was huge. So I, I picked the wrong fight because this guy could have snapped me in half. But I was like, oh, well, so tell me about your supplements and tell me. And he's like, well, this is just going to optimize your diet and give you all the things that those don't give you. And I, I kind of avoided the, well, I thought the whole philosophy of these diets is you don't need supplements because you get it through natural foods. But I let that one go. And then he's like, and this is just going to maximize your training. I'm like, how's that? And he's like... Well, one of its effects is it draws the lactic acid out of your muscles so you can train harder. <laughs> and I finally just looked at him and went, well, that's interesting because lactic acid doesn't exist in the human body. It's like, yes, it does. You, know, it just, you see him get flustered. And so I, I explained that we had in our, our previous episode, and this is where I'm turning into a total prick, and he should have snapped me in half. <laughs> But I'm like Trevor, talking prick. to him about the pKa value of lactic acid and how that shows that physiologically lactic acid can't exist in the human you body. You dropped a nerd bomb. On I this dropped guy. a huge nerd bomb, and he was pretty much just go away. And muscle guy me was alone. just like, you know what? Big middle finger at you. Get away from me. Flick. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't like me. <laughs> I bet he didn't like me at all. Uh, and I did not buy the supplements, but I did take a picture. <laughs> But back to the show. Back to the show. So, yeah, all that, you need this to clear the lactic acid out of your muscles. No. But I'm going to give you a, another potential explanation. And this goes back, we had that episode on staying healthy and the immune system. And it's really important to remember that our immune system has many functions in the body. One of them is fighting viruses and, and bacteria and, and other invaders. But the immune system is also responsible for muscle repair. Right. So when you go into a hard training ride, when you do those high-intensity intervals, you do damage. Mm -hmm. Then the immune system comes in, repairs that damage, and if you train effectively, repairs the muscles bigger and stronger, whatever system you're training, repairs it better than it was before. The adaptation process, yeah. But the process in the, the, that repair process is very, very similar to the immunological response to illness. Mm -hmm. um, hence, 
and, and we went into this in that episode, I won't go into it here, when you are training really hard and starting to push burnout, one of the symptoms is you feel sick. And this is why burnout is often misdiagnosed as, as mono. Yeah. Because your immune system is so activated, you, you have the symptoms of being sick. Mm-hmm. A couple studies looked at the relationship between exercise and the immune system and found that when you train hard, there's actually a suppression of the immune system. And, and again, we went into that in that episode, so I won't explain it here. But it's a J-shaped curve relationship, or actually an inverted U. So when you start training really hard, you see a decline um, in immune function. But when you do easy training... Sort of boost things. You see it boost. So hence that U-shape. So when, as you, if you graft increasing intensity of training mm-hmm. or, or training stress, initially at those very low levels, you're going to see immune function increase, and then mm-hmm. you're going to start to see it drop very rapidly. Right. So these slow, easy rides, they increase blood flow. They activate the immune system. So they are going to help the immune system do that muscle repair from your last high-intensity session, which means, A, you could potentially see better adaptations. Mm -hmm. B, you're going to recover faster so that you can be ready for your next high-intensity session. So it's just what I said. Only you got you dropped another nerd bomb on people. Huge you had, nerd bomb. <laughs> you had to go. No, it, it serves multiple purposes, and I think we're 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 not mentioning the mental component. You don't need right. that swift, sorry, Zwift race in between your Tuesday and Thursday hard workouts. You need something relaxing and mentally um, enriching rather than mentally taxing. Right. So the message here is. When you get on that trainer, you are a time crunch cyclist. You have eight hours a week. You get on that trainer on a Wednesday. You did a high-intensity session on Tuesday. And you're just feeling like, I only have an hour. I need to do something. Look at this ride in the context of the whole week and saying, going easy today while I don't feel anything, this is helping enhance the gains from that hard workout I did yesterday. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is going to help me get ready for my next hard session, which is Thursday or Friday. You look at it in that context, it can be very easy, literally and metaphorically, to just get on the trainer and say, I'm just going to do an easy spin. Yep. And make it really easy. The last thing I'll add to that is a great thing to do on those rides is your neuromuscular work. Mm -hmm. That's where you can do your cadence pyramids. That's where you can do your spin-ups. Just make sure you keep the wattage low. Keep it low. When I do my neuro work, I don't ever want to break about 170, 180 watts. And those rides, I'm going to average 140. What's the relationship between high intensity and low intensity? Is it, do they complement each other? Is it synergistic or do they just fall into distinct buckets? Yeah, I think complementary is the perfect word for it. Thank you. So you're welcome. (laughs) Good job. Hey. (laughs) There's this great review by Dr. Larson where he looked at this, looked at why top pros do both low-intensity work and high-intensity work. And it really centered around this this PGC1-alpha pathway in our system. And that's, again, that's the pathway that upregulates all um, our our endurance adaptations. And I'm going to try to explain this without going really deep into the weeds here. But there are four ways we can upregulate PGC1-alpha. The... Zone one, big volume work, acts through one of those paths. Uh, The high intensity through another. 
and they seem to have a, a multiplying effect on one another. So mm-hmm. basically, the the long slow is going to upregulate PGC one alpha. The high intensity also will upregulate it. But when you do the two in, com- in a particular combination, they multiply, and you see a much much bigger effect. Mm. But two plus it, two equals six. Six in right. this case. The other thing they see is the high intensity work upregulates it very rapidly. You see very quick effects. So you, you're going to see adaptations right away, mm-hmm. but they plateau very quickly. A lot of this high intensity work, you're going to see all your gains after about six interval sessions. Right. The long, slow volume seems to not really plateau. Well, the, everybody has their genetic peak, but sure. it, it will just keep improving. Mm-hmm. But the improvements are very, very slow. Hence the reason to build that base, to build that aerobic side with that long, slow volume, you, you're talking years, years and years and years of development. Mm-hmm. But to bring around that race fitness, a few weeks. I wish there was a, an analogy we could use here to, to explain this. And I, I don't know if this is a, a good one at all, but it's like building a house in a sense. And it takes a long time to build the structure, the foundation, all of that stuff. You get to the end... You put the siding on, you put the shingles on, you put the window trim, you put a flower box on it. That stuff doesn't take as much time, but it's the two together that make the home. Right. I think that's a great analogy. I actually use for my athletes a slight variation on that analogy because a way I look at it is you're given a house. You're given a body. Sure. So you're not building a house. And what you're trying to do is make that house bigger and better. So when we're talking about that aerobic-based fitness, we're, we're talking about the foundation of the house. Now, take a step back. Remember the, the fundamental principle of training, which is training does damage. Mm-hmm. And then it's repairing that damage that, the in this analogy, the house gets bigger and better. Mm-hmm. So everybody thinks of, well, training is doing the repair work. No. Training is a storm that comes in and damages the house. Yeah. And then it's in recovery that you come out and, and do your repair work. Yes. So when I think of that base fitness, that, that aerobic fitness that takes years to build, that's just this constant rainstorm that, where the water gets into the ground and starts eating away at the, the foundation of the house and cracks the foundation so that then you have to build a better foundation. And that's just slow, slow, steady, easy rain that takes a long, long time. Mm-hmm. The high-intensity work, that's a tornado or a hurricane that comes in and rips the roof off the house. And then you just have to build a better roof. Mm. So that's it. Those are the three rides that you should be doing. It's, it's pretty simple. However, we know that there's other types of rides that people do, some better than others. So let's, let's address some of those. So let's talk about the type of ride that you don't see on, in any philosophy. Mm-hmm. And this is the in-between ride. Yeah. No man's land. This is the, it felt good. I felt like I did something hard, but it didn't really hurt. And unfortunately, this is where a lot of amateur like cyclists spend a lot of time. Because these, that's literally what these are. These are the feel-good rides. Yeah. You do an hour, you got a little intensity, you felt like you accomplished something, it, it was pretty good. As we said before, if you're doing the high-intensity right, it hurts. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't like that. These rides, they produce autonomic stress. They don't produce enough damage to really see adaptations. These are the ones that are going to cause you to plateau. 
these are the ones where when I see athletes doing these all the time, those athletes are constantly complaining that they, they just never seem to get any stronger. Mm -hmm. They don't help you. Every ride should have a purpose. Know the purpose of that ride and do that ride. So when you're going out for long and slow, the purpose is slow. Keep it slow. When you're doing high intensity, the purpose is, you know, whether it's sitting at that threshold for longer periods of time or doing your Tabatas, doing, executing it as high quality as you can. Avoid this in-between stuff. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I have athletes do all the time is they say, well, I know today's meant to be a, a long, slow, easy ride. So what I'm going to do is go out to the group ride and I'll ride with the C group. That's an in-between ride. Mm -hmm. <laughs> doesn't matter which group, A, B, C, D, or E, they're all going hard. They're all racing. Yeah. Uh, probably stopping. Even though you might be fitter than the C or D or E group, there's still going to be a lot of intensity in there. And you're just, that is not a, I hate it when I have an athlete say, oh, today was a recovery ride. So I went to the group, but I rode with the, the D group. Because mm -hmm. uh, you look at it and it's just a classic in-between ride. At Apex Coaching, they have my all-time favorite expression for in-between rides. They call it training in moderato. Let's hear Grant Holicky explain. The one that jumps out at me always is making the easy too hard and making the hard not hard enough. Training is about working the edges of the system. Base training is the foundation of what we're doing as an athlete. You can do that base training harder. And frankly, one of the real interesting points is, is, is shown in, many, in, in several studies Base training, which is a little bit easier, and tempo training, which is that no man's land below a threshold, actually are going to give you a similar physiological response. They both have a similar effect on threshold power. They both have a similar effect on VO2 max power, all of those things. Just one of them makes you more tired than the other one makes you. So the more time we spend in tempo, the more time we spend in that no man's land, that's going to sap the legs. That's going to sap the body. Now, when we turn around on Wednesday and it's time to really just rail those threshold efforts or rail those VO2 max efforts, we tend to not have as much left in the legs. So the hard training gets diminished down a little bit. The easy training gets lifted up a little bit. And we live in that world as, as, uh, as Neil, my, my uh, partner at Apex Coaching describes as we live in moderato. We live in that medium place. And, and we're not going to get that return out of that medium place. Make your hard efforts super hard and make your base training and your easy days at base or super easy. So, Trevor, what about a sweet spot, though? Isn't that somewhat what you just described, that this has a negative connotation? No man's land? Yeah, and that used to be called no man's land. We've been talking about the polarized model. I constantly reference this other study. Again, we'll put all these references up where big proponents of the polarized model looked at the differences between all the sports. And you saw that cycling was different. And top cyclists do a little more zone two work than cross-country skiers or runners. Zone two in Seiler's model, to, right. be, to be specific. So this is, this is your sweet spot training. Yep. And I do think there is a place for that. Yeah. I think less so in December and January, I think, as you're getting into the season, a lot of racing is at that intensity. So there is a value of bringing in some sweet spot work. Mm -hmm. So I will have my athletes all winter do the long and slow in the zone one. But once we get to late February, early March, I say, go out and do the group ride, get some sweet spot work. Or I'll start adding sweet spot work to their long rides to start getting that a little more specificity, a little more intensity in the training. There is definitely a place for it. And 
you know, I think of Frank Overton, who was here, who, who's really one of the originators of, of the sweet spot. I don't think he would disagree with a lot of this. He still has his athletes do high intensity. He still has them do uh, zone one work. Mm -hmm. But uh, he says, and I agree with him, there are times in the season where there's a value to that sweet spot work. Right. The other really important thing to remember was sweet spot, uh, and again, thinking about Frank Overton here and how he coaches his athletes, is it's still purposeful, often structured work. That's an important distinction between the in-between stuff, which is the in-between is just, I'm, I'm going on field, this feels good, so I'm going to do it. You know, Frank either gives longer work that's closer to that aerobic threshold, or he's going to get sweet spot work that's actually pretty short and, and relatively high intensity. The key thing is there's good value to it. It's structured. It's purposeful. Mm -hmm. In-between rides aren't purposeful. We talked to Joe Friel mostly about periodization, but he did share some thoughts about sweet spot work. But yeah, it's true. Uh, if somebody focuses on sweet spot, that, in a way, kind of negates uh, polarized training. And yet I'm not sure that really has to happen that way. In, in a way, um, these are, these are uh, contradictory. Sweet spot implies staying at a point which is you know, somewhat below the FTP, or which is roughly the equivalent of anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold for long periods of time, uh, whereas polarized training implies that you spend a great deal of time at very low intensities below the aerobic threshold and then um, get in a, a smaller more portion of time, 20% roughly, and above the lactate or anaerobic threshold. So there's, there's, there's some discussion going on here still within the sport about how to do this. And I've quite honestly not tried to be too precise about this, although in the book I tried to be, a lot, I suppose, a little bit more precise than I am in reality. You know, I, I kind of apply, I kind of use it both ways. I think an athlete needs to get a lot of training, roughly the 80% concept, below their aerobic, at or below their aerobic threshold. And I say at because I have athletes, I would have athletes do a lot of training at their aerobic threshold. But I also employ using sweet spot at certain times in the season for athletes. And at other times they're doing things well above the, uh, the threshold or the FTP. So um, I, don't, I don't think it's carved in stone that you're going to do the same 80-20 relative to the thresholds, aerobic and anaerobic, throughout the year. It's going to be divided over the course of seasons, periodization, where sometimes you're doing 80-20, but other times you're doing 90-10, uh, or you're doing 70-30, you know, or something like that, because you're getting ready for a certain event, and certain, the event is the reason we train. We don't just train to achieve numbers. We train to achieve outcomes in races. And so sometimes it's important to train in a way that, that meets the demands of the event. And that's not always going to be 80-20. So I'm a little bit of a heretic when it comes to the 80-20, but I believe the concept is really solid. You really can't argue that dividing the training with a great deal at the low intensity and, and, and a much smaller amount at high intensity is beneficial because there's been so much research that supports this. So that's kind of where how I hedge my bets on this thing when it comes to reality. Back to the show. What about training races? Where in the season are they most appropriate? So again, this gets into specificity. If you remember our episode, a couple episodes ago, we, we talked to Joe Friel about periodization. And his biggest message with periodization is you need to get increasingly race specific. Yep. 
there is nothing more specific to racing than racing. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge value to training races. But going back to what you're we talking to, about before with the in-between ride, if you're going to go out to the, the Saturday group ride, or if you're going to go to a training race, make it one of your high intensity sessions and make it hard. Yeah. So don't go out and say, oh, I'm going to ride with the B group or C group or, you know, however fit you are, you know, a group that's a couple levels below your ability and sort of go hard. Yeah. You take advantage of the opportunity to right. use, treat it as a race, not only from a f physical standpoint, but, you know, mentally too. Yeah. So going back, we talked at the beginning about uh, my old mentor, Glenn Swan, that he used training races for his training. If you showed up to the training race and you just sat in, he would pull you aside and say, you're not welcome back here yeah. unless you start going harder. Mm -hmm. And you saw it in him. First training race of the season, he would off the gun be attacking us and attack and attack and attack. And because he wasn't that fit yet, he'd blow up and, mm -hmm. and we wouldn't see him. Then the next week, same thing, attack, attack, attack. He'd last 10 minutes longer. And you'd see this for a few weeks until his race fitness came around. And then he'd attack and we'd never see him again because he was really good. I, I think that's one of the really interesting things that you see with with people at a, at a certain level is they go to these training races. They do treat it at as a race. They might not be in that part of the season where they're actually that fit, but they're okay with that. And they're fine sort of blowing themselves up because that was their intent from right. the very beginning. That was the purpose of the ride. And they're not embarrassed by it. No. They, they got out of the ride what they wanted to get out of the ride. And not everybody can do that because they're afraid of blowing up. They're afraid of that. Maybe their ego is too big. So my favorite expression for my athletes when we're talking about training races is race smart on the weekends, race hard on the weekdays. Mm -hmm. Don't go to training races to sit in and wait for the right moment. Go to the training race to kill yourself. Yeah. I, and it's, you know, it's a great place to experiment and try different things too. Right. Biggest waste of time is to go to a, a weekday training race and sit in the field and go for the sprint at the end. Unless you're like me, the worst sprinter in the world, and that's actually something you need to work on. <laughs> what about every once in a while, we just need fun rides. You just need to set aside structure, set aside a purpose, just go out and ride your bike because riding bikes is awesome. So is that goes, true? This goes back to there is an exception to everything, and yeah. this is the exception to the in-between ride rule. Don't undervalue the importance of mindset. Mm -hmm. If all you are ever doing is riding steady at zone one and hurting yourself in intervals, you are going to hit a point where you just say, mentally, I hate this. I hate riding the bike and you're going to quit. Yeah, that's very robotic and, right. and takes a can end up taking a lot of the pleasure out of it. You, you, it's very, it becomes formulaic. Let's put it that way. The thing with the in-between rides is they're fun. So there is a place for them, but my recommendation is plan them ahead. So if you plan an easy recovery ride and it becomes an in-between ride, you got off course and you need to adjust. But if you just say, this is mentally getting to me, I need to have some fun, that's fine. If put it on your plan if you're coaching yourself or tell your coach. Yeah. And I do that frequently with my athletes where when I start to see that they're not mentally as fresh, I just say, you know what? Forget the structure this week. Go out, have some fun with, with your buddies. Yeah. And just don't look at the bike computer. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Try just avoid looking at the power meter. Just don't worry about data. Just collect it, but don't look at it and have fun. Have some fun. Don't have it be an oops. <laughs> have it be, I need one of these rides right now. Yeah. 
and planet. Get back to why you ride the bike in the first place. Another big exception that breaks a lot of rules in a way, I think, is the fatigue blocks. These big um, blocks of, of rides, three, four, maybe even five days in a row where you're breaking all the rules in a sense. So I hope we got across the message that it's how all these rides fit together. Yeah. I always look at training in terms of weeks. I never look at it in terms of individual workouts. And a really valuable week is that training camp or fatigue week where you, as Chris said, you do four or five or even just three days in a row where you really beat yourself up. And the purpose is by the end of that week, you're dragging your feet. You want to get off the bike. Um, you are tired. And that's where you can break the rules. That's where you can have some fun. I love those weeks because that's, I might start it a little structured. I might do some interval work or a test at the beginning of it. But by the end of it, I'm like, I'm just going to go out to the group ride and have fun because I'm just trying to accumulate stress here. That's where a lot of the rules get thrown out. That's where you do intensity back to back. That's where you try to do intensity when you are tired because you have to do that in racing too. They do have a real value for the time crunch cyclist because if you have a family and if you said every weekend I'm going to go out and do two four-hour rides, you're probably going to get divorced. <laughs> if you say to your significant other, every five weeks I want to have a weekend where I do those two big five-hour rides, yeah. usually families are very accommodating. Yeah. And then you don't have to do as much on, uh, on the weeks in between. All right, Trevor, Coach Connor, if you will. I know you love a little competition. You've got 60 seconds. What are the take-homes for people listening to this episode? Okay, in 60 seconds, and I've just lost five. One, two, <laughs> three, Okay, here we four. go. Keep it simple. If you are focused on should I be at 145 beats per minute versus 143 beats per minute, or if you want to talk power, should I be at 210 versus 215, you're getting caught up in the trees. Stick with the forest. Keep it simple. Keep it purposeful. We've now given you three types of rides. Each has a purpose. Make sure you are accomplishing the purpose of that ride. And it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Look at rides in, con in the context of the week. How does the week fit together? Because then all of a sudden, those one-hour easy recovery rides have a very important purpose when you look at how they fit between your high-quality rides. So never look at a ride in isolation. Look at how they all fit together. This episode to me is about the elegance of, of an approach. Again, like Trevor said, it's that simplicity that I love to embrace. As a goal-oriented, list-oriented type of, of person and athlete, I love the fact that you can throw your rides into three distinct buckets. And it's easy when you set out that day to know what you're going to be doing. It helps you um, wrap your head around what it is you hope to accomplish. It's also helpful to know that if you're not getting to the place where you expected to get, you might want to abandon that ride because it's not the day something else might be going on. It's, it has this nice structure to it that I really like. And I always come back to Dr. Seiler's research and the stories he tells about how he came to know a lot of the things that we talked about in this episode, which is he's studied some of the most amazing athletes in the world. And sometimes athletes at that level just know how to get the most out of their bodies. And this is what they do. 
Yep. And I come back to that like, okay, if it works for that guy, I'm never going to be at that level, but his approach works and I'm going to adopt that approach for me and see how it works for me. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk at facebook.com slash News and on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo News and Connor Coaching. For Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.